0: Today's guest is a serial entrepreneur who's completely disrupted the hair color category proving that beauty is a recession-proof business. Women are still and always going to spend on things like their hair color. I cannot wait for you to meet Amy Errett, founder of Madison Reed. But before we get into today's episode, I'm your host Lindsay Pinchuk and I have been building brands for nearly 25 years since college. With a $500 investment, I founded, built, and sold a seven-figure business that reached 3 million people per month. This podcast is my twice-weekly letter to you to inspire you to find success through your own entrepreneurial endeavors. This podcast is also the show that I wanted 13 years ago when I became an accidental female founder. If there's anything you want to hear about or anything that you want me to share to help you through your own journey, I invite you to reach out. All you have to do is email me at lindsay at lindsaypinchuk.com or shoot me a DM on my Instagram account at lindsaypinchuk. And if you're inspired by today's episode, I invite you to share it, text it to a friend or share it in your stories on Instagram. Make sure you tag me at lindsaypinchuk or and or at Dear Found Her because I will absolutely come and say hi and likely share it as well. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, I would Love it if you left a five-star rating or review wherever it is that you podcast, and we've made it really easy for you. All you have to do is go to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash Dear Found Her, and you will be able to rate or review us wherever it is that you listen. This is so important as it helps other entrepreneurs to discover our show and the incredible stories that we share here each and every week. So Amy Arrett is the founder of Madison Reed with over 30 years of business and operating expertise as a four-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and social mission visionary. She created Madison Reed with a strong belief that women deserve more not just in their hair color, but in their lives. She believes this so firmly that she named the company after her daughter, Madison Reed. You're going to hear her talk today about the company's inception, how it got started, and how COVID changed everything. Madison Reed is booming. And if you haven't seen one close by to where you live, I guarantee you after this episode, you will notice one on your corner. Please come on in and meet the one, the only Amy Errett. So today and Dear Found Her, we have an incredible guest, one I'm very excited about. I'm enthralled with her business. She has completely disrupted her category. Amy Errett is the founder and CEO of Madison Reed. And if you are a woman, maybe a man too, but if you are a woman who colors your hair, you absolutely know what Madison Reed is. And we are so excited to have you, Amy. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Lindsay, thank you. I'm really uh, excited and looking forward to the conversation.
0: So tell everyone, I mean, this is not your first rodeo. You have, you have been in entrepreneurship for a long time, but I'd love to really get to the heart of the matter and how and why you started Madison Reed. And also give an overview of what Madison Reed is to maybe some of those very few people out there who do not know.
1: Sure. So I'll start with that part. We are Uh, The first uh, hair color brand that is a prestige professional salon quality hair color available to you wherever you want to color your hair. Uh, We've innovated on ingredients, so we are the lowest chemical profile that exists. Uh, We have technology that color matches you and matches your color by asking you 18 questions. And we allow you to do it at home with a beautifully curated box sent to you whatever cadence you color your hair um, or you can walk into 85 of our, what we call hair color bars, which is our version of a salon, but it's only hair color. You're in and out 90 minutes, full transparency of color ingredients, uh, and they're all over the country for on average about $80. So it's a value. Um, we also sell our product uh, in Ulta, Alta.com. Uh, so every Ulta door um, and Alta targets um, right now the mini stores within Alta uh, and selectively in Amazon. So that's that's it. We're uh, we're hoping to disrupt. Oh, that's this. it.
0: That's it. <laughs> well, <laughs> Come on, well, Lindsay. I'm sticking to it. Um, why I
1: started the business? Um, I love consumer brands. I have a sense that consumer brands are they're out of vogue, by the way. Um, those of us that are doing them for whatever reason, uh, you know, they, they tend to be something that, uh, folks are not understanding that, um, in our category, she's going to color her hair no matter what happens. And we've proved that during the pandemic where our business doubled in a 10 month period. Oh, we're going to talk we, about that. We've never looked back. Uh, and I like businesses that I think are actually doing the right things for consumers in our case the innovation in our product in terms of ingredients. Um, I think uh, that women in particular uh, get taught by the media that um, at a certain time or age that they're not beautiful anymore and there's no feasible reason why that's true. And so we are a brand built on confidence and we understand that what we're doing at your hair looks like it's your hair and it is, but it's really about creating a sense of, you're a badass. You could do anything that you want to do, no matter what age you are. Uh, your hair is a manifestation of that. And so we are just very focused on making sure that our customer understands it. We also and why I started it. So it's a huge category. So that made sense. And I'm, I was a VC in between number three and this is number four company. Uh, so I saw the big uh, total addressable market and I saw that nobody was addressing it the same way. Um, but I also saw that there was a massive opportunity, massive in the workforce. And so our stylists are all certified licensed cosmetologists. If you know anything about cosmetologists, they really come into this industry because they want other people to look beautiful. They are artists and they are therapists, by the way. <laughs> They're probably the therapists that you tell everything to. And so anybody listening is probably laughing. They know more about your life than anybody else does. Um, And uh, I also saw that the way they were treated in the industry and the compensation they made versus the debt they had coming out of cosmetology school was a a big gap. And so I was really focused on making sure that we could be the best place for a stylist to work. Stylists work in our call center. um, So they learn tech skills and stylists obviously work in each of our 80 plus locations right now. Uh, I want us to be the best place that they can work, that they can grow financially, personally, and professionally. We pay 100% of benefits. So there's a lot in the company that is uh, rooted in this notion of uh, doing what's right for your team. And that, in turn, is what's right for uh, the customer.
0: So I'd like to go back pre-pandemic. And I would love you to kind of paint a picture of what your business was at the time. because I only heard about you during the pandemic. I mean, really, and and I know we're going to get into that because obviously that was a huge player in terms of your growth as people were coloring their hair at home. But I would love for people to understand what your business looked like looked like before the pandemic happened.
1: Uh, our business before, so uh, it'll be, it's eight and a half years. Mm-hmm. And so if you kind of remember those wonderful two weeks, I think in a couple of weeks from now, it was three years from the two weeks that we were all going to be, changing our lives. Remember that part? Just yep. two weeks. We'll be. Uh, so three years later. So we were about five years into our journey then. So our business five years into the journey, we had 12 hair color bars. We had a big online business and we had a beginning relationship with Alta in all Alta stores. That was it. Um, it was a reasonable size business, meaning it was a respectively good sized business for a venture backed five-year company had real revenues, moving towards profitability. So things were in moving in the right direction. Uh, uh, fast forward 12 months later, our business doubled. Um, and most of it was online and ultra growth. Uh, but there was also a significant amount of growth that we had throttled deciding that we were going to open stores. So we were um, just hell-bent on making sure that we knew that we were going to create a situation where um we were going to take real estate because we knew as soon as she could get out of the house she was going to color hair.
0: were you prepared for what happened in the first part of 2020 um
1: no no absolutely we're, definitively no we were prepared we we actually weren't in horrible inventory shape so we had always had pretty good inventory but Uh, let's put it this way. What I had for inventory heading into March of 2020 (laughs) was good. Uh, but within three weeks, I was almost out of inventory. I was selling a boxing color every four seconds.
0: That doesn't surprise me. I mean, everyone was losing their minds and everyone wanted to keep their hair color, despite the fact that, you know, we were all at home and even though we were on zoom. So obviously, I mean, when you, when you think back to the pandemic, no one, no one wanted the pandemic. Obviously the pandemic was a fucking nightmare. We all know that, but it was really good for your business. And so how did you come out of the pandemic and really capitalize on that moment and that momentum? Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs, and this is really, I want to focus, I really want to talk about this in, in terms of your story. A lot of entrepreneurs are not often prepared for change and sometimes change can demolish them. But when you have the right change and you capitalize on the moment and that sometimes requires you doing a lot of extra work, it can catapult your business to the moon and back. So I'd love for you to kind of share how you capitalized on that moment.
1: So the first place I'll start is that one can never predict life events, right? So you know, as an entrepreneur, the advice I give people is always be ready. Because in our case, who would have seen it? Like, I didn't see it. And then, yeah, it was great for our business, but I do feel compelled to say this. It was great for our business, and it still was pain and suffering for a lot of people. Yeah. So I am humbled humbled by the fact that it catapulted us. It did not come without a cost to society and the world. And we're seeing that cost downstream. I could talk to you for hours about things that I think this changed that will be in the history books for our children to read about for a long time. Um, Having said that, we had we had an executive team that was ready. We had um, an infrastructure that was good enough, <laughs> although stressed in what I, used to, I was telling the board while this was going on, and they're like, are you kidding me? It was insanity. Uh, so f- number one, we had to get hair color out of Italy in the Lombardy region, the hardest hit region next to Wuhan. So there was just, that was within itself stress, okay? We had to shut our stores. So the 12 we had, we had close to 200 people that we had a decision to either furlough or not furlough. Okay, so that stresses your cultural values. Then for, and I can't make this up, for 11 months every day at 7 a.m., there were six of us on the phone every day, seven days a week because we were managing inventory, uh, 3PL problems, people getting sick in 3PLs. You know, people yelling at me saying my I can't get my box and I'm like, hey, I'm really sorry, but I there's three people that died at DHL two days ago. Right. Because they weren't using it's not DHL, but people weren't using proper safety protocols and right. forcing a group to come to work. Right. So it was like we had all these inherent conflicts, Um And so the thing I would say is we were prepared. We jumped into an emergency response preparation. The board was asking me every day, like, well, how are, what is going on? Don't let the wheels come off the bus. That was the statement. And I said, let me tell you something, guys, the wheels aren't off the bus, but every night there's six of us in a garage pumping the hell up off the tires because they're flat at the end of every day. So the issue was that we just went into overdrive and what I understood and this is honest, was this was either a moment that was going to blow up the company or make us great. And we rose to the occasion and it made us great. And we put in massive infrastructure in 21 and still in 22. And now in 23, we haven't gone backwards. We've grown and grown and grown on top of it. So like it made us grow up. And I think that it was a defining moment for our team to come together and we also realized like, oh, you can't, don't plan to fail. I try to explain this to people all the time. I'm an African sports person. Every single fantastic team. I remember, I'm a Warriors fan. I have tickets. Do you remember years ago? They were really bad. They were really bad. Making the playoffs eight, 10 years ago was like, oh my God, the Warriors made the playoffs, right? Now, if they don't make the playoffs, you're just astonished. So my point is that every bad team, mediocre team, sort of better team, great team, goes through those maturation process. And what makes somebody who's not a great team become a great team? It's this one thing that I call pattern recognition. It's seeing the things that you've seen, that you've learned from, that you're not going to let happen again. And then the most important thing is it's finding a trust with teammates that is goes beyond just what's words on a page it's how do you build something which is like you know what you're in my lifeboat and I'm going to put my life in front of a train track for you um and then when everybody just starts doing that the mat you know human spirit's amazing I mean it's just made a wall in China by the way and if you've ever been to it you'd be like that can't be possible that people carried those rocks up well they did so um yeah pandemic was amazing incredible.
0: So obviously you're known for hair color. You started as hair color, you disrupted the hair color industry, but naturally you have many product extensions now. I mean, you have so many different products on your website, you know, as I was kind of looking through, even from the last time I had been on your website, I feel like there was more products. When was it that you made the decision to expand Along your journey, when was it that you were like, okay, we have we have the hair co- the hair color market covered, and we're going to expand into other products? When was that? I think that that also, you know, often entrepreneurs kind of have a, a tough time making that decision. Like, when is it time to introduce a new product? Is it the right time? Is it the right product? And what order do you go in? Yeah. So for us, the
1: interesting part. I'm happy that you say that because I'm glad it shows up that way, we don't offer any products that are not for color treated hair. I get asked all the time, like, are you going into color cosmetics? What about, and I'm like, no. Like, so the first place I'll start is this brand called Madison Reed should be known for hair color. Then our job is to educate customers that if you color your hair, don't use those products that are not for color treated hair. So for instance, if you color your hair, you can't just go buy Head and Shoulders or Pantene or some other shampoo because guess what? It strips color in your hair. So when somebody says color running out of my hair, I can guarantee you the shampoo they're using isn't locking in color, sealing in color and protecting color. If you swim a lot, like there's a lot of these things that people don't understand because in essence, it's what's in the ingredients of the things you're using that might be contrary to the fact that you wanna keep color vibrant and in your hair. So all of our products, uh, personalized shampoo and conditioner, styling products, um, root touch-ups of powder and a 10-minute, three-week fix, glosses, um, protein-strengthening bonder, these uh, lightener, these are all products that have both been made with an eight free formula, which is our signature, there's eight things that are out of every product that are very unusual in hair color to have been able to take them out and still have efficacy. It took us, we'll be at this nine years in the summer. And for the first 15 months that the company was incorporated, we didn't sell a product because we were making this. We were making hair color. So we've only really been selling for seven and a half years. And it's because we had to make a product that was efficacious that worked. Because the industry has been super good at teaching people, oh, it doesn't have ammonia or PPD; it just can't work on your hair. You know that's silly. That's not true, by the way. So, um, yeah, we made that decision um, honestly. Like as things progressed, we when we first made hair color, we knew that the next extent, the next thing we were going into was covering roots on a temporary basis. Because every woman in the world, here's what you learn, colors their hair seven to 14 days later than they think they should or want to, because life happens, right? So most people just want to fix that doesn't take two hours. They just want to put something on the top of their hair, be able to go outside, not have to wear a hat and live, right? And so we knew that. So that we had license for that. But I would say that it was probably halfway in, three years in, that we started to realize like, oh, we have license to have shampoo and conditioner for curly hair or dry hair, oily hair. Um, We could take on some different categories. So we have a product called Root Perfection, just came out, it's not even a year old, and it is taking on Clairol Root Touch-Up. So that little tiny bowl that you mix and you put it on there, like we have a great version of that that takes 10 minutes and buys you three weeks. That thing has been on fire.
0: Hi guys, it's me, Lindsay. I'm not sure if you're aware, but over the last nine months, I haven't just helped big enterprise brands on their marketing efforts through my consulting firm. I've also helped over a dozen women, small business owners in launching their companies, building their brands, and to tweak what wasn't working. I've been building and growing brands for nearly 25 years, but I've forever used one method to build my own brands and that of my clients and students. My signature sweep method utilizes social media, your website, emails, events, partnerships, and publicity to generate and execute cost-effective community-centric marketing strategies. If you're looking for that added layer of guidance, please reach out. There's a link in my show notes. Book a call with me and let's see how I can help you. I can't wait to meet you and learn about your business. Now back to the show. I want to go back to kind of before you started this, just because you do have such deep roots in entrepreneurship. And obviously, different than a lot of my guests here who have never been entrepreneurs prior, a lot of t- a lot of my guests here are first-time entrepreneurs. Um, when you started Madison Reed, was was there like a very inherent one, three, five, seven-year plan? I mean, were you did you? Show up to the table like ready to go with what your plan was, just given your knowledge on what it takes to start a company prior. Uh,
1: so the first thing that I try to explain to people a lot is that by having done it three times, then taking a set close to seven year, six and a half year hiatus, and being a full time NBC was well, so I had the wherewithal to know in my first three companies what worked and didn't work and where the big bodies were buried, as I call it. Every entrepreneur, how do you know if an entrepreneur knows what they're doing? They know where the bodies are buried, as I call it, right? It's not about the successes. It's knowing where, what things you need to fix. hundred And so for the sixth, and a half years I was in VC, I was partners with Howard Schultz. I ran and opened Mavron's office in the Bay Area, Seattle based consumer only early stage venture firm. And so I had six and a half years of paying attention to what worked and didn't work in allocating capital, giving capital. Who were the right kind of people? What were the characteristics? What did it speak to inside me that I had done right and I could have improved that? What were the three things? So here's here's what I try to tell everybody about the three things at early stage investing. So I'm going to tie it back to your question because I had to answer these three things in myself or I wouldn't have done this. Because what I knew, which is something similar to your history of if you ever choose outside podcasts to start a company again, you will do it with, as I call the, um, there will be no excuse for the insanity.
0: No, of course. That, I mean, a- and I interestingly, I am starting to come another, I mean, I have two, two PNLs right now. I have one for my consulting company where I consult people on how to grow businesses and how to market businesses. And my second PNL is my podcast, but really the community that surrounds it. So,
1: but you're not entering into it with like, oh, it's going to be all wonderful. You're like, no, I'm trying to bet against the things that almost crushed me. And what can, how can I increase the probability it won't crush me the same way? So for me, here's the three things. One, total addressable market. Now, this is one that people will say to me, well, what about if it's blue ocean and never existed before? Awesome. If you're one of the people in the world that's ever created that, because there's only a handful. Like I passed on Twitter, so I'm not so good on that one, right? Like go down the list of things that I saw and I wasn't smart enough as a VC to actually think, oh, blue ocean, blue ocean, right? So one is in the hair color space, I knew the total addressable market was every woman in the world at least six weeks, sometimes four weeks, three weeks, two weeks, right? I was like, okay. Now, meanwhile, every dude that ever looked at this deal thought I was nuts because it kept asking me, is the total addressable market big enough? Swear to God. And I was like, what? Oh my God. So I would answer with this phrase go check your visa bill. Because what I can tell you is your wife, your sister, your mother, whoever. They're spending an enormous amount of money regularly, and maybe you don't know about that. But the truth of the matter is, it's happening. So check total addressable market global, right? Second thing, cook, what is it about what you're doing that is different than what everybody else is doing? So it's what I call product innovation, technology enablement, whatever that thing is. And so I knew for us, nobody had ever innovated on ingredients. The whole world, right, nine years ago, when I'm telling friends I'm leaving being a VC and I'm doing this, they're like, "Are you? What happened? Did you have like a midlife crisis? You're nuts. You're a VC. That's like the pinnacle of all success in the world. And I'm like, oh, no, not for an entrepreneur it is. You wake up every morning feeling like I jumped the fence, right? And so the truth of the matter is I needed to have a reason to believe. And I kept thinking, I care what's in my body, on my body. I'm doing this thing every six weeks my entire life, from 35 to 70. And it's okay for me to put toxicity on my body. I don't get this, right? Now, I didn't really understand that vanity trumps all. (laughs) But my truth was that could I make this thing that every other CPG company was like, oh, no, you can't. Now, I know why they didn't want to. Because they had to say that everything else that was on the shelf for a year sucked, right, or was toxic. So, product innovation, total address product innovation, and then third thing is team. It always comes down to the people. As an early stage investor, I would take one out of the three risks, but it would only be product innovation or TAM. It would never be the team. So, once I knew now that I could move the dial on those things. Uh, especially, and I want to be clear, when I knew the state in which this part of the beauty industry or hair industry was in, the, the lack of innovation, the fact that you physically had to go sit somewhere for three hours and you had no idea what they're putting on your hair, it's all contingent upon one person's calendar. And by the way, it's not yours. I was thinking like, what? It's not portable. It's not like, Today, you could walk into my iron store and walk into the Upper East Side, or you're in LA, go to 11 of them, or Southern Florida. It This didn't make sense to me, right? So, So having said that, when I added all those pieces up, I knew I was like, ah, aha, aha, we could string that together. However, I had zero clue in the pace and the sequence for which what I just said could be true. So where we did start, and this is advice I'll give anybody. I'm a product person. Underneath it, my my juice, my aliveness, as I call it, happens when I see that I and we can make something that from a quality standpoint is just amazingly good. So the reason, in retrospect, we started in our D2C business was that's the hardest part to get right. I don't see you. And I have to ask you to answer 18 questions. And I have to predict one of three swatches that will work for you was like virtually impossible, and we did it. So once we knew that we were getting 65, 70 net promoter score, and our retention was really high in our online business, I was like, holy moly, this is salon quality that allowed us to get into stores.
0: I love everything that you just said. I mean, I, everything that you just said is so valuable on so many levels for entrepreneurs. And especially, you mentioned, of course, the people, the team are everything. And one of the things that you talked about at the beginning of our conversation was you talked about the workforce and how you wanted to address compensation. And here you are talking about the team and talking about the people and how they are everything. So I'd love for you to explain how you did address the compensation and how you made it so that you were giving this workforce a place to come and work and be paid fairly and compensated better than in other places. Because I can tell this is something that is so important to you. And I can also tell that this is just one of the, one of the main pillars of your business. It's, you know, yes, the hair, the hair products are one, but like the workforce is a huge part of your business. And I would love for you to share that. Cause I think that people grapple with that, right? Like How do I pay properly? How do I pay competitively? How do I keep people?
1: Yes. So uh, I'll answer it in two parts. One, early in the business, I knew that the call center had to be certified licensed colors. So we got five people in San Francisco to say yes. Why these kids said yes to us is beyond me, right? And I stood between the five of them for six months. And I listened when we first launched the business about what clients were calling about, what their fears were, were the friction point to purchase, and what was the magic that the person that we had hired was doing to convince the client of the right solution and have efficacy. Got it In the first 15 minutes, this is, this is a workforce that is motivated by making other people beautiful. So once I figured that out, that they weren't getting that, right? It was a hard living to make. And I realized that we had the competitive advantage in the cons. Remember, in our stores, it's our product. I am not buying a tube of color from L'Oreal for $11. A stylist today buys a tube of color from L'Oreal for $11 and has to rent a chair and has to market and has to buy their hot tools, right? And has to pay their own employee benefits. Or healthcare, right? So I looked at that. and I'm like, oh my God, we have an uh, we have an opportunity to get this thing to be a place where we could scale. There's a workforce. What do the what does that workforce want, right? That's where everybody should start. When you build a team, you need to understand the content skills the person has, but you need to understand the heart. And you know, somebody once taught me. Everybody in business will teaches you. People follow you because you're smart. It's your strategy. No, yes, some um, people follow you because you're human and you actually care and you tell them the truth and you're authentic and you see them genuinely for their talents, right? Like I have people running stores today. I, I it, it can make me cry. We're like, I come into the store and they're like, hey, this is the greatest job I ever had. My kid can go to college. I have healthcare benefits. I never had them. I'm making more money than I ever made. My career opportunities, like you've made my family's dreams come true. And I think no matter whatever happened, check, check, and check. Because as founders, as entrepreneurs, especially women, and I think this is some gender issues. What do we really want? Like I get up every day and I'm past the point in my life where I get up every day. It's like, this is just a financial exercise. I could have done... I probably for I have probably left millions of dollars on the table as being a VC. I probably could have worked someplace else and had high compensation as an executive or a CEO of a public company, whatever that is. And I would have been miserable because my genius inside of me is making other people's dreams come true. And so once I knew that, then I knew that there was a connect between what they needed and what I knew how to do. And at the same time, like it, it's working. It's not the retention piece you talk about super hard. And COVID has been super hard because it has whacked people in ways that actually have nothing to do with work, zero, zero to do with work, anxiety, stress, kid stuff, frustration, stuff with uh, spouses that were never meant to be together for 24 hours
0: a day for two and a half
1: years right? Like these were constructs of things that our lives got thrown upside down.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Hivecast, an amazing agency providing high quality podcast production made simple and affordable. I hit the jackpot when I came across Hivecast. As I pieced together services from contractors all over the web initially to help me with my podcast, Hivecast was everything that I needed all in one place. For just $500 per month, they not only produce and edit four episodes, but they also create the marketing assets. Emma, my account manager, is amazing, making sure that I'm on task and that we can schedule episodes regularly and by my deadlines. Honestly, the time saved working with Hivecast is worth at least triple what I'm paying. Their sister company, Fireside, offers other marketing services for small businesses, including social media management. Facebook and Instagram ads, search engine marketing, and so much more. Again, all at a rate palatable by a small business owner. The best part, there's no contract. You can purchase their services as needed on a monthly basis. Use the code FOUNDHER and save 50% off your first month of services. Give them a try. The decision to outsource this part of my business has surely saved me a ton in the long run, and it was the best decision I've made for my business. I love that you just you just said something actually that I posted about on LinkedIn today oddly enough. You said that you probably left money on the table and it doesn't matter because <clears throat> you're happy. And I feel the same way. Like when I chose to leave the company I founded, I was fucking miserable at the company who bought me. It's not a secret. I share it all the time. And I was miserable. And I left. There were a lot of things that I left. But to me, my happiness was worth it. And I love that you bring up that point because there is this huge value placed on your happiness that I think a lot of times people allow the financial piece to overshadow. And, you know, one of the pillars that you guys live by is that women deserve more and it's more what it's not always more money. And so I appreciate you saying that because (laughs) it's just, it's, you know, I, I mean, I, I am not making in this moment, what I was making when I left that company, but guess what? I will, I'll get there again. And that's okay. I, you know, but it's my happiness and I am, finally in a place. So I so appreciate you saying that because I just, I think that coming from someone who has founded so many companies and been around the VC world, it just, it says so much about you and your brand and what you want to do for other people.
1: Well, uh, I have a, I have a, I have a saying which is the amount of gratitude you you have equals the amount of happiness you derive. And I think that the issue is What I've come to understand is my happiness is fueled by my gratitude and my, what I call my aliveness. And my aliveness is that zone that you're in when it's effortlessly flowing through you. When you're just like, yeah, this is what I was made to do. So then let's take that to the stylist. That's what they've been made to do. And all this other nonsense about they don't have benefits, nobody pays them well, the world's unfair, blah, 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 whatever that is, like, no, not here like we love you. We're in this with you. We're going to make your dreams come true. You got to work hard. You have to earn it. But at the same time, like this company is really rooted because I also believe this other thing, which is true. When your team members are happy, your clients are happy. And when they're not, they are not. Right. And, and, you know, as I say, call a credit card company, see how much people love working there. They don't. So, um, and who could name one credit card company that any of us aspires to want to do business with? Right. They're all the same. Right. Right.
0: So you have a company that's built on values and your company is also named for your daughter, which I think is amazing. And so I would love for you to share kind of what the most important values are that you instill in her and also the legacy that you want to give her with this brand.
1: Well, the first one, you know, there's five values, love, courage, joy, responsibility, and trust. And so the first one that is the most obvious one to me that it start, everything else starts from is love. And, you know, I don't talk this, that uh, I can't, I uh, teach at Stanford Business School case about Madison Reed. And one of the things in the case is like, can love be a corporate value, a corporate value? And I'm like, Okay. Well, would you like to have everybody come to work and hate what they do? I don't think so. Wouldn't you love to have a workforce that is passionate and comes to work? Not every day. I don't. There are days that I'm here and I'm like, really? You just told me that? Really? So like I get it. But um love is the most, most powerful human emotion. It is for many of us, like that feeling makes. Everything else worthwhile, everything, right? And so at the end of the day, uh, yeah, love is something that I want Madison to experience in her life, not just romantic love, but, you know, the love for yourself, number one. So the number one thing about this value is I want our team members to love themselves because they work here and they gave that to them those. I want my kid to love herself. And go through life realizing that whatever she decides that she wants to do, she deserves it. She's got to earn it, which gets into trust and gets into responsibility. And by the way, courage, because I have a lot of viewpoints about women not getting funded equally and fairly. A lot. And it also requires courageous behavior from us to not accept. The fact that when you tell me no, I'm going to feel beaten down by you. Screw you,
0: right? Thank you for saying
1: that. Yes, you know, at the end of the day, like, cause some dude turns you down, like that doesn't define you. They weren't meant to. They didn't deserve to give you money, right? I I
0: couldn't agree with you more, and I'm so glad that you're saying this.
1: Yeah. So, the end of the day, what do I want for my kid? I want. Madison to love herself. I want her to think as much about herself that she deserves things. And I want her to realize that actually good things happen when you work hard and earn them. And so at the end of the day, that's why, you know, naming it after her is metaphoric and it's metaphoric for I actually want those same things for every client, for every team member. I'm so done. Read something yesterday. Guess what? By the time a little girl is six, what's the most important thing she learns? She's supposed to
0: be thin. I was going to say something about her looks.
1: Yes. Does anybody <laughs> in the world find that to be compelling? Is that sad? That makes me tragically feel awful about what is it that the media and society
0: is teaching our children and what do we buy into? Right. And, and now it's and even worse friend, as they get older with it. the social media. And by the way,
1: Everybody that's got a boy that you're raising, the opportunity is astoundingly as important to raise great men. Right. So this isn't like a gender play. It's like, how do we raise great men and, and tell great men you're great? So at the end of the day, it's like, what do I want for her? You know, she's in her freshman year in college. So this is stuff we talk about a lot now. She was a little kid when this all started. And um, we talk about this a lot. And, you know, um, I I want every person, gender, doesn't matter to me, to feel like, you know what, they deserve great things in life if they earn them equally, fairly. What I try to tell people internally, this is important. This is a company that is, we now have a platform. So when you have a platform for your team members to experience that being true of what Amy said, or when you have a platform for your customers at scale to experience whether they feel this way or not, you actually have a responsibility. It's not on anybody else. So that means what we do and how we behave actually has a rippled impact. And so, companies and founders and CEOs and executive teams have to get up every morning and not just think about, oh, it's all about every profit. Yes, it is about profits. We have to make money, but we have a we have a social responsibility, and this is something I take very seriously.
0: I'm so glad you're saying this. I mean, you're, you're filled with so with so much wisdom. I'm so excited to share this. <laughs> so you said. I want my daughter to know that she has to to work hard and and earn. And yeah. and and so I want you to talk about that for a second because I think from your daughter's generation and maybe the generation above her and maybe the one that uh, that's above that. I think there's a lot right now that comes into play with instant gratification. So I just want you to kind of talk a little bit about this because Working hard is still so important, and I, and, I, and I wholeheartedly believe that, and yet I feel like there's this pushback on, like, we shouldn't have to work so hard.
1: Well, I think there's a pushback on something slightly different. I think generations go through, certainly ours, <laughs> went through a whiplash to where your parents were generationally, right? Like, we tend to go, you know, in other directions. Correct. Um I think there's something deeper going on. I don't think it's aI shouldn't work hard or earn it. I think it's a existential question about what where does happiness get derived for this these generations. I think it's existential because I think it's a world that these generations are facing into that looks like a really different world than the one we were at their age and so i'm I'm not at the defense of. Uh, younger generations, but I am at the root of realizing that they see our political divides. They see the lack of hope and possibilities. They see the environment and where it's at and the denial of that. They see like they see the the um, correlation between thinking that people that have means are bad because they don't do the right thing with their money. They see uh 1% and a 99%. Yes. They see that it would be very difficult if they were born into any privilege to ever have as much as their parents did, which is frightening as hell and demoralizing. So having said that socioeconomically, they feel like, well, you know, you guys are all fucked up. So how are you going to be the ones that are going to tell me what to do? And I think our approach to this as... Uh, folks that are of a certain generation and responsibility is to reach in and to understand more and to try to figure out. Like I have a lot of twenties and thirties. sure, and that's why I'm asking this. I don't, I don't hear that now. Some of it is just because I'm a re- we're real pe- people, and I'm like, okay, if you have issues about work life balance, tell me what's not working for you. I want to hear. What's not working for you? I want to understand how you see things that educate me. I, I actually, here's the thing. I believe that life's greatest gift is this word called curiosity. One of life's greatest gifts is the ability to become curious, not right. I am absolutely obsessed with being curious. I want to be curious why a 25-year-old actually thinks that working past noon on Friday is a bad thing for them maybe they're right. Maybe my crazy lifestyle, which there's been things that I've given up in that isn't, a maybe the desires of what they aspire to want have nothing to do with money or those kinds of achievements. So I'm curious. Now, when I open myself up to curiosity, I learn things. And when somebody else opens themselves up to curiosity, they learn things. And nine times out of 10, after I have those conversations with people, I can't make this up. They work harder. It is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen.
0: But I, be- I believe it. And that's why I'm asking you. I mean, you have a company they that's they very. Want
1: they want yes. to be seen. Here's the basic truth. I could give everybody at Madison Reed a 50% increase tomorrow in salary. And three months from now, any of the same problems they had before will emer- reemerge. Because it's never only about the money. It's about like, do you want to work somewhere where you believe in the mission? and actually, somebody. You walk in every day, whether it's remote, don't get me started on that, or not, and somebody goes like, oh, wow, Um, you know, Lindsay, I see your genius. I see this thing in you that's so amazing, and I want to keep making sure that keeps showing up in ways that make you feel validated and seen and rewarded. People are like, oh, my God, yeah, sign me up. And I think part of it just I'll leave it at this. Don't think more most corporations have earned the right to prove to anybody that they're seeing them. So there might be quite a reaction to the fact of like if you don't see me for my talents, I'm not going to put a lot in. That wasn't my generation. You know, my generation I was know. you were the first one in and you were the last one that you know, you you earned your right to be seen because you you were crazy enough to just have to stand out from the crowd, right? But um, I don't believe in
0: that kind of leadership. I, I love that. And I love that. I, I just, there were so many takeaways from what you just said. So thank you um, for, for indulging me on that question. And my last question is the same question that I ask all of my guests at the end. And it's, what are three actionable tips that you would give a founder who's just getting started that they could use today?
1: Uh, one, uh, don't ever wait. Even if before you ship product or you have product, define your culture. Number one, uh, we were in business four days and four of us sat in a room. We didn't have tubes of hair color. We didn't know how we're going to make it. We had an idea, but we defined those same five things that are up on the wall about where what is where's the place we want to work? What was the where were the guardrails, the soul of the company? Don't wait. If you do that two years from when you start, it's you forget it. It's over. Right. Because, you know, like a personality culture doesn't come because you say it is. It's because you tell people how you, you set you up to hire. How do you know how to hire your fifth person unless you're screening them against what you think is the cultural values? Right. So culture. Number two, be realistic that you will go through a windy path and it'll cost more money and take a longer period of time than you ever thought. And so when you're first raising money, raise more than you think because it and don't care about dilution. This whole nonsense of like, oh, I gotta get the highest. Man, I'll just tell you, cash is queen. Um, and uh, you know, it's the only thing that it matters up to a certain point, which is survival, so that you find that product market fit, right? And then the third thing is um, as long as you in your heart know that it's right, it's right. No one can ever, with a founder, ever, ever, ever tell you something that you know in your heart is uh, wrong when you know it's right. Don't be swayed.
0: Amy Arrett, founder and CEO of Madison Reed. Thank you so much for being here. It is an absolute honor to have you on the In My Orbit In some way, this conversation was amazing, and I'm so excited to share your knowledge and wisdom with our community. So thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: With over 30 years of experience as an entrepreneur, it's no wonder this episode was jam-packed with so many incredible bits of wisdom and takeaways for all of you as you look to build and grow your own businesses. As always, I'm going to share my top five takeaways from today's conversation. But if you want all of them sent straight to your inbox, please make sure you subscribe to my newsletter, which is linked in the show notes. Every single week you'll get the takeaways from our episodes as well as other tips and tricks to grow your business. But for now, take out your pen and paper. Here are my five top takeaways. Number one, you want to know that what you are doing that is different from what other people are doing. Number two, Cultivate your employees and your team. It will come back to you 1,000 fold. See your employees and your team. See them for their talents. Number three, listen to your customers. Amy stood in the call center and listened to what clients were calling about for the first six months in order to really understand what her brand meant to the clients and what the clients needed. She ultimately found out that this is a workforce that's motivated by making other people beautiful which ended up being a tenant for her company. Number four, define your culture even before you create or ship product. What does your brand stand for? Where do you want to work? What are the guardrails? And what is the soul of the company? Don't wait to create this because like a personality, culture doesn't come because you say what it is. It comes because you build it. And number five, as long as you and your heart know what is right, then it's right. No one can ever tell you that something's wrong when you know it's right. Don't be swayed. Thank you so much, Amy Er, for being here today and for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with all of us. And thank you to everyone who tuned in and listened. Make sure that you stay tuned because we have Who episodes dropping for you every single week, every Tuesday and Thursday. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for being here.